Hi, everyone. Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the Device Talks weekly podcast. I hope you're enjoying the 4th of July weekend or week or day or whenever you're listening to this podcast. Perhaps it's already a couple of weeks out. In any case, whenever you've pushed play, you've got a great episode coming your way. Later on, we'll speak with Kevin Hikes. He is CEO of Augmedics. Kevin has uh, had great success as a CEO. We'll get into his track record and experiences in this podcast. You have some great advice for first-time CEOs. And then, of course, we'll talk about Augmetics, uh, its novel uh, OR imaging system, its record-setting financing raise that just closed on. Lots to talk about. So uh, Kevin is a great guy. I've had the opportunity to work with him in a few projects, and uh, it's always always excellent to catch up with him. Before that, we'll have our uh, remodeled newsmaker section. Uh, we'll talk with associate editor Sean Hooley, who uh, covers diabetes for Mass Device and our other sites. And uh, Sean, of course, covered the recent American Diabetes Association meeting. So we'll uh, talk about some of the uh, innovation that came out of there, some of the news that came out of there, some of the big company releases that came out of there. We'll have uh, some word from Dexcom, Medtronic, uh, Insulet, and others. Uh, goes on and on. So uh, great job by Sean. Gives an excellent wrap-up and brings Chris Newmarker and I up to speed on what went on at ADA. Before I begin this episode, just want to remind you that Device Talks West is happening on October 18th and 19th. Registration is open. I am closing in on the agenda. We should have it finished up next week. Uh, we have keynotes from Imperative Care from Johnson & Johnson MedTech, from Intuitive. We'll have uh, speakers from Stryker and Boston Scientific and Abbott. And those are just the ones that I've confirmed. So uh, a lot more coming your way. Make sure you take a look at the agenda when it comes out. You can find it all at devicetalks.com. One final programming note, we won't be putting out a Device Talks weekly next week uh, due to the holiday, but we will be uh, publishing the uh, next episode of Boston Scientific Talks, and it features my interview with Mike Mahoney, the one we did at Device Talks Boston. Great conversation about where Boston Scientific is headed, uh, how it has changed since uh, Mike Mahoney took over over a decade ago, and uh, some insights on, on how he decided to take the job. I really enjoyed that conversation. I'm sure you will too. So you'll hear that next week, next Friday. We'll send you Boston Scientific Talks right here on the Device Talks Podcast Network channel. So once again, no Device Talks Weekly next week, but an epic Boston Scientific Talks will be coming your way. Oh, before I let you go, I want to remind you that Device Talks Tuesdays will resume, not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday. We'll have presentations on surgical robotics, advancing innovation, improving your sales techniques and systems, uh, brought to you by uh, folks while Sagentia will be kicking it off on uh, July 11th. So uh, make sure you go to devicetalks.com to register for those upcoming episodes. We've had a bunch of great Device Talks Tuesdays already happening, and we're we're moving into the second half of the year. Many, many more coming your way. We have several in August, September, all the way through the holidays. So uh, make sure you do not miss a critical episode. Finally, before I begin this podcast, I want to apologize for the audio in the newsmakers section. Chris's audio is fine. Sean's audio is fine. My audio is terrible. Somehow my uh, Bluetooth headphones grabbed a hold of the Zoom call and wouldn't let go. So I sound like I've got a bag over my head. Chris and Sean said they didn't really notice a difference. So I don't know what that says about my broadcasting abilities, but hey, so uh, I'm going to be a little muffled for the first uh, 20 minutes or so, but uh, my interview with Kevin Hikes is, is fine. So again, apologies for the, the lousy audio, 
But uh, Sean Hooley is the star of that part of the show anyway. All right. Let us get this podcast started. Let's go. All right. You ready for this? Ready. Marker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. Glad to hear it. So, I don't want any any fighting, Chris. You know, we brought Sean Hooley, associate of Mass Device, on here. He took your your newsmaker uh, readings on on the Fast Five podcast. Any hard feelings, Chris? You can you can be honest. Oh, this is good. This is good. It's good to mix it up here. <laughs> I mean, Sean isn't taking my job. He's just taking. He's just doing something. Yes. They're daily, though. They're daily. It's a little bit different. So Chris, being exactly. the, 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 uh, the seasoned veteran that he is, pivoted, adjusted to our new Newsmaker feature, which we unveiled last week. That's right. Which we got some nice nice comments about. People seem to like it. They like the, they like the trend stuff. So. Cool. So good job, Chris. So it's like I, I, have, I have my moments. Every once in a while, I get a good idea. You know? Many moments. Many moments. <laughs> So, Sean, you were, you were covering the uh, American Diabetes Association meeting uh, live from your, your, your living room, right? That's right, yes. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of the mood of your living room as you were covering the ADA meeting? Was it, was it, uh, was it joyful? Was it, was it melancholy? What's it's poorly lit, Tom. Uh, <laughs> we, have, we have noted that. We're, 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 we're looking at Sean's <laughs> silhouette right now. It's, so. it's been gloomy weather in Massachusetts, so there's no sunlight coming in. It's all it's it's tough in here, but I'm I'm making do. The it's better than consistent construction noises outside my bedroom slash office window. So Sean looks like he's uh, he's testifying against a mobster. So yeah, yeah we, we don't have to wire any <laughs> cryptocurrency to the Russians who are holding you. <laughs> We're not going to have to adjust his voice, but he's got he's got the mystery thing going on, which is very intimidating. So, so let's talk about EA, ADA. A lot of great news came out of there. You, you, you uh, provided a lot of it to Mass Device, but also to the site drugdeliverybusiness.com. Uh, can you just give folks a little rundown on what drugdeliverybusiness.com covers? I think people people figured out from the name, but give us a little more color. Sure. Well, drugdeliverybusiness.com is, like you said, it's all there in the name. A lot of drug delivery devices, obviously insulin pumps are a massive part of it, and to an extent, I've sort of branched it out to diabetes. So even though CGMs don't deliver drugs, they are part of some of those automated insulin delivery systems. It's all part of the process. So a lot of pretty much any diabetes coverage, digital included, is going to be on drug delivery, but also auto injectors, syringes, things of that nature, needle-free vaccine delivery. So all those things are there. But yes, diabetes definitely takes up a large portion of the coverage there and and all joking aside about the, the mood on the floor since we're actually there at the conference but you did talk to a lot of people you did a lot of coverage what, what was what was some of the yeah, absolutely what was some of the feelings that uh, that you took away just from your multiple conversations or analysis of the news that came out of the meeting there were a lot of press releases a lot of product launches what what, what was some takeaways it just the ever-evolving world of diabetes probably i guess yeah. would be the biggest thing because so many different companies, you know, the big names we've talked about a lot with Abbott, Dexcom, Medtronic, they've all had recent FDA clearances or approvals of next generation diabetes tech. All those things are now being, you know, backed by clinical evidence and other trials, including uh, insulin from Novo Nordisk, a year-long CGM from Sensionics, 
digital diabetes tech, digital management, uh, diabetes reversal. It's all, it's all there. It's just, it continues to rapidly advance when I sort of took on the duties of livening up drug delivery a few years ago. It's just complete. The scape is completely different compared to only two and a half years or so. So I know you talked with uh, folks at Dexcom earlier this week. Who did you talk to at Dexcom and what was the, what were you talking about? Well, I spoke to Terry Lover, who's the chief commercial officer at Dexcom, and she took over only about six months ago. And pretty much her joining Dexcom coincided with the launch of the next generation G7 CGM. So we talked about just getting right into the thick of things there, you know, the general feedback about it, which is overwhelmingly positive. And then we talked about their recent announcement that they are, well, first sort of pivoting to, they've changed their mission statement from changing lives and diabetes to health. So they, they want to expand beyond diabetes to an extent to help more people and address a larger market. And with that, they are unveiling a new, or well, teasing, I guess, sort of a new sensor that they want to bring to the market by next year that will track continuous glucose monitoring, but for people who aren't on insulin. So that's really their first step. And we, yeah. we discussed sort of why they're taking that, you know, step that way and what what they're doing. So it's people who aren't insulin, but they, they are diabetic or people who have not tested for positive for diabetes at all? That part was really interesting. I mean, this was uh, actually like for, for women who are pregnant. Oh, okay. Year, right? So, and that, that comes, I think that stems from maybe a year, two years ago, They there was a study about using the CGMs in hospitals and with pregnant women and sort of tracking their glucose levels because of the spikes and things that can happen. Worries about gestational diabetes. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, that that's sort of the, the path they're taking. I, I suppose if you're not on insulin, I, I guess that could mean you don't have to be diabetic. There's not a ton of detail that they're revealing about the product yet because it's still sort of in its infancy in terms of they don't want to say too much with regulatory hoops to jump through and things like that. But I should note just in some of the details that Dexcom did provide, they mentioned that the product for people who don't use insulin, which makes up approximately 70% of Americans with diabetes, so almost three quarters. So it's still targeting the diabetes population, but apparently 70% of Americans with diabetes don't use insulin, but could still benefit from a CGM. Okay. And I I recall from your conversation with Kevin Sayer, his daughter-in-law, I believe, used an earlier version, right? When she was pregnant and having some difficulty and her doctor was so impressed by the data it delivered uh, that I think the comment was, well, I wish I had this for for everyone, for all pregnant women. So, or at least pregnant women who are having some complication. So, so that's a clinical trial of one at least. Um, While people with diabetes use our product always stayed on it during pregnancy anyway, there are actually standards published by uh, the Endocrine Society and American Diabetes Association with respect to use during pregnancy and what a person's time and range should be and, and the highs they should avoid. So I, I think the pregnancy opportunity will be good for us as well. And then hopefully we can move to gestational diabetes. There's over 4 million gestational diabetes cases a year uh, in, in the United States alone. And I, I have grandbabies uh, that came from a gestational diabetes case. My eight-year-old twin grandchildren 
their mom had gestational diabetes back when we only had G4 and I put uh, their mom on a CGM and it really, really helped uh, with the management of the condition. In fact, her OBGYN, this is many years ago, but I mean, they're eight. So it's at least nine years ago, said, I don't know why everybody doesn't have this. This is awesome. So I, I, I think there's a number of opportunities just on the overall health side that touch diabetes, but as we'll move a little further out with this technology going forward, and it'll be a, you know, a good year of, of laying the foundation for the future as well. Well, that's great. And that's exciting. And I remember Brian Bunce, our pharma editor, wore an earlier version uh, for a week as part of a trial that uh, Dexcom was offering. And as a result, he started managing his, his life differently. I remember he was jogging more, right? He lost some weight. Yeah. So there's an enormous opportunity here. I don't want to. I don't want to say that everyone should be wearing one, but I mean, there's some people who are very health conscious and you know love to get that extra data. I mean, you know, and frankly, like I mean, both me and you, Tom, you know, we're you know we're getting more up toward that age. Well, I'm, like, I'm, even I'm like, trying to manage. You know, I go in for my annual checkups, and my doctor's like, you know, Chris, you know, you should should watch out you know like be careful of your health because you don't want to you know get to the point where you are pre-diabetic or no just in just managing weight and such it's uh it's, yeah it's, totally it's complicated uh and increasingly yeah. difficult so more data would be interesting just to know what what damage i'm doing to myself i don't see why there isn't a world in which you know where we're all wearing i'm wearing an apple watch right now you know why a cgm that's discreet and lightweight and doesn't you know get in the way couldn't become sort of a normal totally. part of a non-diabetic's life. But yeah, it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Absolutely. So Medtronic had some news as well. I spoke with a couple of uh, physicians that work with Medtronic that were presenting some data. We discussed the data that they brought out about their new Minimed 780G insulin pump, which is only recently FDA approved. And it's you know an automated insulin system, artificial pancreas, all that. And yeah, we discussed sort of there was data about how it performed in adolescence and it, you know, the meal detection technology is really the big sort of thing there is that it counts carbs for you. And they found that the manual carb counting or they were split into two groups with there was a fixed number of carbs and then some calculated a precise number for their meals. So the AI based software used this fixed number of carbs to manage insulin versus the manual entering of the of the numbers themselves mm-hmm. and the fixed number. Basically, what it proved was that the device was able to provide consistent, safe, effective insulin control, even with non-exact numbers from the actual carbs. Fantastic. And it's nice to see Medtronic's uh, diabetes business getting, a, getting its feet back under it. I know it cleared the warning letter a few months ago, got that approval, acquired the company. Uh, EOFlow. That's right. EOFlow that's going to give it some additional functionality. EOFlow develops the EO patch. So yeah, it's a similar worn patch pump that looks at least in images. I haven't really seen it in action, but looks similar to an Omnipod. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Insulet Insulet and Abbott, uh, anything uh, new about their, uh, their collaboration? Yeah. So because, you know, Omnipod 5 is such a well-known and widely used insulin pump the company wants to expand basically the population that or maybe not expand the population that can use it but allow users to have a choice because up until now it only paired with the dexcom g6 uh cgm but now they're looking to pair with abbott's freestyle libre 2 and the company said that they have made progress basically 
They expect to soon begin enrollment for a clinical study integrating the Omnipod 5 with the Abbott Freestyle Libre 2. They want to recruit up to 200 participants with type 1 diabetes, both adult and and pediatric, and potentially demonstrate superior efficacy with Omnipod 5 compared to multiple daily injections. So what what they're looking at is eventually users will be able to have a choice between Abbott and Dexcom CGM. There'll be great more options. I mean, it, I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, Enslet stock took a took a hit after the news of the Medtronic EOflow, uh, you know, plans. But um, I mean, they're definitely advancing and doing more things over over at Enslet and just, you know, having that ability that people can, you know, use an Omnipod and like use, you know, have a choice between CGMs to use. I mean, that, that definitely sounds like that could be a benefit as well um i mean what do you think sean i mean it's kind of feeling things are kind of feeling up for medtronic diabetes again aren't they definitely and i should i should say that uh, as you said the insulate stock took a hit as did tandems uh but oh, i yeah. believe the analysts at the time were pretty you know not as worried i guess as investors were they they, they said that it shouldn't really have a huge impact on on their market shares. But yeah, no, for Medtronic, it's been a wild, you know, year, year and a half, considering the, the warning letter was only what, December 2021, and they, they resolved it, you yeah. know, within a year and a half, all while coming out with next generation technology. They're also talking about a new uh, standalone CGM that they should be coming out with hopefully soon on their front. They have already submitted it for regulatory approval in Europe and the US. So yeah, no, it's they're on the up and they're continuing to innovate. And it's considering that there were suggestions that diabetes could be on the chopping yeah. block maybe a year analysts ago. Were yeah. saying you should, the analysts were saying you should spin that out. And uh, they, they stuck with it. You know, now, uh, you know, now, now they, they appear to, you know, be on the, uh, the ups, upswing with diabetes tech. So, and, you know, frankly, the more competition, the better. You know, and the funniest thing is I ran into, like Medtronic CEO Jeff Martha at an event, you know, at the University of Minnesota early last year, and he asked me what I thought the two most ex- exciting things in medtech were, and I said diabetes and surgical robotics, and he stuck with it. So, I mean, I think they stuck with it because I, I said that, right? Absolutely. No, sure. Yeah, yeah totally. I think I think that's so. why he yeah. went to that meeting, yeah. to just find you and ask. Because he hoped I'd be there. Yeah. <laughs> in- <laughs> Send an invoice for a consulting fee. Let's talk about sort of the next gen, next gen. Like we're, we're talking about things that people have used, but there's a couple of interesting uh, bits of news from Novo Nordisk and from Sensionics. Two two devices that would really, I mean, change the game or devices or, or, or a form of insulin that would change the game as to how diabetes can be managed. That can be managed, excuse me. Definitely. And Novo Nordisk reported a clinical trial that met endpoints with its once weekly basal insulin. So... They compared once-weekly insulin to once-daily insulin and effectively proved that HbA1c targets were hit and they were, you know, safe, effective, all that. And so I think, generally speaking, to reduce the burden of just managing diabetes, we talk about it all the time with CGMs and pumps, and like with the Medtronic meal detection technology, you know, if you can just enter a fixed number and not have to worry about specifics and the device can do it for you, even though this isn't a device, it's you know being delivered with whatever device you choose, but to be able to only worry about your insulin injection once a week compared to once daily or more time, multiple daily, that's 
quite the improvement. You know, for, for many people who have diabetes, it's such a consuming disease. I mean, there's so many things you have to do to manage it, you know, every day. I mean, just, just the less that you have to do. I mean, there's a reason why this is such a motivated population of people when it comes to these devices. Absolutely. I'm hoping, you know, five or 10 years from now, probably 10 years, but maybe sooner, we'll be looking back at this time and all the time before that as, oh my God, do you remember what they, what people with diabetes used to have to do to manage their care? So uh, it seems like we're on the cusp of a lot of, a lot of great, uh, great advances. Sean, any other takeaways from ADA? Yeah, well, speaking of reducing the burden, there was another study for Sensionics CGM, which is a 365-day implantable CGM. So you want to talk about, you know, it, with Dexcom and Abbott, they obviously have extremely popular CGMs that are about two-week wear time, and then you replace them, and they're easy on, easy off, whereas Sensionics is implantable, and it's right now approved for 180 days. So you have two annual implant er, removal implant procedures, but a 365-day CGM to only have once per year go in and, and get that removed and get a new one put in. And the study highlighted the effectiveness. It still keeps people in range for their glucose. And it, it's for people who want that option, I think it would be quite the game changer. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. That'd be great. And uh, finally, uh, digital, 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 anything on the digital front? Yeah, a couple of different things. We've got Vita and Verta Health, which are hard to tell apart sometimes just because my brain is small. But no. Uh, <laughs> Companies that start with V. Yeah. <laughs> we had uh, Vita Health reporting data on its virtual diabetes program, which is coaching, management, all those things. And, and in important sort of settings in low income populations and how they can help, you know, people who are disproportionately affected by diabetes. Similarly, Verta Health has a diabetes reversal platform, which is also management coaching, but it aims at effectively reducing diabetes symptoms, insulin dependence, things like that. And they also just looked at how it works in terms of in a health equity setting. And so I think that sort of while we're talking about all the innovation and the next steps in diabetes to also have companies really looking at how they can help the disproportionately affected communities. I I think that's a a big, big step. And obviously, you know, to have sort of these things at your fingertips with a iPhone app or things like that could be really helpful if if you can't access medicine or devices, things of that nature as easily. Yeah. Just anything that, you know, any way that, you know, to use digital health to kind of like bridge the the gap and in disparities in care that, you know, we see, you know, across this country and really around the world. For sure. And and just going back to sort of game changing technologies company, I have been a long time fan of continue to track it's a massachusetts company fractal health mm-hmm. announced uh oh yeah multiple studies supporting its program for the reversal and treatment of diabetes where they uh use hyperthermal ablation to target the duodenum in conjunction with a word i'm not going to try to pronounce <laughs> but i mean to think that there could be a procedure that would would help reverse diabetes entirely and and, and at least I'm, I'm guessing for a subset of the diabetes population uh make this sort of device intervention unnecessary would be a huge wow, step. definitely. And they also, yeah, they they reported on some early data for their gene therapy, which could also, oh, right. you know, be be effective in, in treating diabetes. Um, which we I, I've done a lot of coverage on Fractal over the last few years with the Revita reversal procedure, the ablation and things of that nature. I hadn't seen much on the gene therapy, so it's interesting to see they're looking at multiple avenues, different ways to approach it. And yeah, definitely all positive stuff so far. 
Yeah, I was. I didn't know about the gene therapy aspect either. Reading your article about it, Fractal Health said it's finding from the Rejuva program in rodents, so it's still very early stage. Definitely. But, uh, yeah. But uh, heck, that would be fantastic. Yeah, you've always got to be careful because uh, I, people aren't mice, <laughs> like. <so. laughs> but. Very but true. yes, Very like true. seeing yeah. you know seeing a mice you know study you know like like at least there could be hope. I mean, it would be uh, it would be wild if uh, if you know a lot of people don't don't need all this diabetes management technology in you know a decade or two because you know there's there's procedures or therapies that can just you know reverse the condition. That'd be astounding. Fractal aims for first in human studies in 2024 with that gene therapy. So hopefully. hopefully a year from now, I'll be able to come back on this podcast and share with you some positive data for actual humans. But yeah, it's, 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 yes. it's a good start. Well, let's make this deal. 10 years from now, I'm going to bury a bottle of scotch. 10 years from now, we'll dig it up. We'll see where we are in the diabetes space. We'll all have drinks. Everyone in the podcast is invited. Love it. See where we are. In no 10 no years. matter the outcome, we're drinking the scotch, huh? <laughs> we're drinking it either way. It might not even make the 10 years. I'll like, probably dig it, up, dig it up long before then. But uh, you'll just bring it to Device Talks Boston. <laughs> 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 but what are you looking at, Tommy, on stage? <laughs> It's the opening keynote. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, cool stuff. Uh, ADA is a great meeting. Uh, Lots of great news coming out of it. And lots of that great news are on uh, our great pages of Mass Device and uh, drugdeliverybusiness.com. Yeah. And all this, gosh, Sean, all this great coverage you've had. uh, We'll be have you'll be uh, soon posting a a roundup on both uh, drug delivery and and mass device off of uh, all all this coverage that came out of ADA this year, right? That's right. Everything we talked about will be distilled into one easily readable form with links to everything. So you'll you'll be able to navigate it easily. Fantastic. Great stuff. All right, Sean. Well, thanks for, for slumming on the Device Talks weekly podcast. Thank you. Taking time away from your your Hot Fast Five podcast. I apologize for bringing down the mood with my poorly lit living room, but thank, thank, you, thank, you, thank you for allowing me. It's, it's not good for a podcast. Nobody has any idea what we're talking about. But, um, the uh, yeah, Thank you for having letting me join and, and talk about diabetes. Light a, light a candle or something, Sean. Something. Just give me a little, that would little, actually little, be nice, wouldn't it? Holiday yeah. lights. A little, little, candle. little soothing candle. You know? We had the holiday lights, but it's... That's it's right. June. It's, yeah. it's June, the holiday so. lights yeah. out. Yeah, no, you need, you need those. Those can be year round. Yeah. <laughs> we got holidays all over the place. There's holidays everywhere. It's right. Fourth of July lights. Yeah, oh, red, white, and blue yeah. lights up. Why not? <laughs> all right, Sean. Great job. Thanks for joining us uh, on the podcast. Good times. See you guys. Well, Kevin Hikes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Nice to be here. Nice to have you back. We've, we, you've been a, a guest on a previous podcast that I've had, and we've also worked on a, on a conference together for a couple of years, which uh, was a lot of fun. It's nice to have a person on the, on the other side of the podcast who understands the uh, what it takes to, to put on a quality event. You were, you're Thank right you. in the thick of it. Indeed. No easy <laughs> test. You do a nice job with that. Oh, I appreciate that very much. But we're not here to talk about conferences. We want to talk a bit about, well, your career how you started in MedTech, and of course, we want to uh, catch up with the great news that Augmetics has uh, delivered this week. You folks raised a, a sizable amount of capital, and we'll get into the details in a moment and learn about the company. Before we do all of that, Kevin, how did you uh, you find your way into the medical device industry? You weren't in MedTech right from the start, were you? Uh, no. I actually began life uh, as a consultant, uh, actually a coder with uh, what is now Accenture. Spent three years writing 
code and machine language and assembly language and was kind of a, a tech nerd and went back wow. to business school. And when I graduated from business school with a marketing and finance degree, the tech industry was in a bit of a slump. And so I sort of fell into healthcare by accident. Being from Minneapolis, I had a ton of connections here in Minneapolis in the industry. And it was kind of the closest thing to tech at the time and intriguing to me. So I joined Medtronic as their, I think it was the first class of MBA hires in the company's history. So they were creating a rotational program. Oh, yeah. Really interesting to me. So it was a great way to start my career and get exposure to a, a number of different businesses within Medtronic. I think you're the, the second person who was, uh, I think, part of that effort that, I, that I've talked to. So what was that like coming into a company like uh, like Medtronic with a, an MBA when, uh, again, as you indicated, there, there weren't a lot of uh, those folks there previously? Uh, you know, it was the company, I think, at that point was 30 or 40 years old. So the culture was, you know, it was a remarkable culture, remarkable company. There was some degree of perhaps suspicion about all these kind of new MBAs. They they had hired us from just two or three schools. And so there was some, some of the old guard were a little nervous about us walking. <laughs> in. And I think they hired people that were able to tone down whatever level of MBA swagger there was. So very, I think almost all Minnesotans as well. So I think relatively <laughs> the crew uh, who were eager to get involved and help. And I think uh, ultimately it worked just fine, but it required a little bit of sensitivity going in and but, uh, you know, a great experience for me and a chance. I was there 17 years yeah. in uh, four or five different business units, including four years in Europe. So a great sort of exposure to world-class medical device, obviously development and manufacturing and commercialization. So what was it that, that you enjoyed about the, the med tech industry? Was it the industry that you were happy to be a part of or, or I'm guessing it was both or was it Medtronic uh, being a, a place to work but what uh, what stuck why, why did you remember? yeah well you know and I I remember when I was interviewing people talking about what how gratifying it is to work in that field mm -hmm. and you know I was I kind of accidentally fell into it I thought the technology was really cool and I kind of like science and healthcare seemed interesting so I fell into it but I remember I I very quickly once I got over fainting in the operating room which I've done <laughs> All over the globe and lots of <laughs> flavors of operating rooms. I'm, I'm bomb proof now, but I began to truly sort of appreciate it for what it is. You know, and it's it's obviously, you know, all jobs have tough days, but when you're when you're doing something this important for people and you're making a difference in their lives and in their health, it seems to make the uh, you know the bad days are a little better when you know you're actually doing something good for people. So there's a certain level of of emotional sort of salary that you get along with everything else. And that that sort of stuck with me. You know, and I think, you know, the, the fact that it was, I was struck at how hands-on it was, how everyone probably listening to this knows that the med tech model is bench to bedside to bench. It's lots of iterative, collaborative involvement with physicians. So, you know, the fact that I've been in operating rooms and clinics and cath labs all over the world and have met with, you know, innumerable numbers of patients who who have personally benefited, there's a real satisfaction that comes from seeing your work, you know, actually helping a specific person. So that was really important to me. The role of integrity and ethics in this business is unquestioned. You know, it's it's obviously a great responsibility um, to work in this industry, and it requires absolute prioritization of patient safety, integrity. And, you know, we I remember growing up at Medtronic, it was drilled into us that the first question was always, you know, would you treat your mother with this tomorrow? So when we were facing tough decisions about product quality, 
or a manufacturing issue. It was really, it would boil it all the way down to people you love yourself and would you subject them to this technology? And so, you know, I learned at an early age in my career that that's what ultimately matters. And I've carried that with me throughout my career. And, you know, every staff meeting, every significant meeting I run, even today, 30 some years later, starts with patient safety, as it always did at Medtronic. And I guess the last piece, you know, this is a, if you're a curious person, this is a, a fantastic industry in which to work. You know, it's, it's a combination of high tech, but it's a combination of clinical science and anatomy and physiology and pathology. And it's, it's working with really smart people on really interesting and important problems and, and in interesting places around the globe. So it's, I don't know if you like to travel and you like people and you like cultures, that's kind of an extra icing on the cake in a lot of the jobs that I've been able to, to secure in the industry. You, you were there, you mentioned, for, for 16 or 17 years, and, and you said you came aboard as you know, one of that first MBA class. I'm, I'm just thinking about where Medtronic was finally when you left in, in, in 2008. It had become, by that point, it was such a large company, it would acquire Cavity, and what, six years later, uh, it was already a, a global company. What was that? 16 years, I guess, would sound like a long time to, to some people, especially people younger in their careers, but... In the in the scheme of things, and I think in the scale of growing companies, it's not a long time, is it, for a company to grow from where it was when you joined to to when you left? What did it feel like a, a rapid growth to you? Well, yeah, and I was actually there. Fortunately, during I think it probably quintupled in size when wow. I was, when I left. It was probably fifteen or sixteen billion. It's now now obviously much much bigger than that. But you know the culture was intact. But it added a number of very important businesses along the way. So to me, and I, I changed jobs every four years and was in different parts of the world and different parts of the human body and different technologies. So to me, it, it flew by. And, you know, I, I didn't when I finally left, it wasn't because the company had changed. I just sort of had this itch and had had it for five or six years to try something small and nimble and, and dynamic. I didn't quite know what that meant. But I ultimately just decided it was time to give that a try. And that's what led to my departure, not, not any dissatisfaction with the company itself. Sure. Understood. Well, let's talk about that transition. So you, you went to Visiogen, which was a, a very cool ophthalmic device company. Were you looking for any sort of opportunity? Did you have a particular interest in, in that space? What, what drew you to, to Visiogen? And how difficult was that decision to leave Medtronic? Is yeah. it a place where you were happy? You know, practically speaking... I was at the time I was reporting to the, the CEO of Medtronic and I had an ironclad Minnesota style non-compete oh, okay. prohibited me from working in virtually any, any business the company was in or any business they were debating getting into in the near future. And wow. I had exposure to a lot of that. So I intended to honor that. People at the time were kind of going to California and cheating on their non-competes, but I wanted to honor the non-compete, which left me with teeth and eyes. <laughs> I've joked about it before, but the teeth were all in Switzerland at that point, and the eyes were all in Irvine, California, the ophthalmology <laughs> industry. So, you know, to some degree, my 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 fields were limited, and I looked at a lot of stuff. But I finally was approached by a very promising company based in Irvine, California, with a promising interocular lens, really good investors, looking not for a CEO but for a number two, kind of a commercial leader to help take the product to market. And so it, it just sort of fit. And I got really good advice, advice at one point from a, a mentor who said, look, don't, there were people calling me to, to be the CEO of a startup, but they weren't very good startups. And this mentor said, look, you're way better off starting your career in that space 
as a strong number two with a really good board and, and building the relationships you need to potentially lead something in the next cycle. Because they said, look, the quality of the startup matters, the likelihood of something good happening, as risky as they all are, it's the, the good stuff happens to the, the better ventures that have good boards, good syndicates, access to capital, working in the right markets, et cetera. So I took that advice and became a number two, moved my family to California and had a you know terrifying but thrilling ride for three years before the company was acquired by Abbott. So did you have a sense when you made that move that it would be acquired that quickly or did that surprise you? No, that, that was a surprise. And I had, yep. I'd been warned not to, not to, you know, and I give this advice still today. You shouldn't move into startups from big company med device because you think you're going to get rich or you're going to hit a home run. You need to do it for the right reasons, which I think are, you know, the, the thrill of the chase, the fast pace, the, the shortened cycle times, the chance to be, you know, in the cutting edges of technology in our field, those are the right reasons to do it. And if you if you pick the right startups, eventually one of them, something will probably, something good will happen. Interesting. You can't come out of one of the big companies and expect to make a million dollars two years later. That just, it just doesn't happen. And you wouldn't want to plan your life that way. I don't think. Interesting. I think that's great advice. I think though people do join the startups thinking that I'll do this for five or six years, I'll kill myself and then, uh, and then I'll be on easy street, but you're right. That doesn't often doesn't always, always happen. Nope. No, no. So how did you find your way to Cameron health by that point? That, that was an area that Medtronic probably uh, had a little bit of interest in, but your non-compete, I guess, had uh, uh, expired at that point. Yeah. And, and one of my roles at Medtronic, I was the commercial lead for the defibrillator business, which at the time yeah. was, it was maybe Medtronic's biggest business on a standalone basis, but I knew the field well. I was approached by some investors actually who were based in in Orange County in Newport Beach, who had an investment in Cameron Health and, and were making a change. And so it's sort of through my networking out there and through the really strong board members at Visiogen, I was connected with this other group of investors, none of whom I knew, and brought in to take a look at that. And, and as it as is typically the case for a first-time CEO, it had some hair on it. And it's also typically the case they didn't exactly explain all the hair that was on it. <laughs> you always get a few surprises when you actually get in the door. But it was a you know a, a technology and a clinical space that I was familiar with. It was a, a bit of a turnaround, you know, struggling clinical trial, pivotal trial enrollment, struggling kind of first chapter commercial effort in Europe, some team rebuilding. So typical challenges for a company at that stage. It was probably 12 years old when I joined. So was able to come in, raised... $107 million, I think, in the first year, which was, a, I think, a high watermark at that time, and was able to strengthen the team, finish the clinical trial, and relaunch our commercialization in Europe, which ultimately led to Boston Scientific acquiring the company upon FDA approval. And what was that uh, experience like being, well, let's talk about being CEO first, and I like to talk about the acquisition after, but what surprised you about being CEO? Something, what was maybe something that you hadn't anticipated being responsible for having to do being the, the the person in charge? It's a good question. I think I was relatively well prepared at that point because I'd, I'd watched my former boss at Visiogen, Reza Zadno. I'd watched him in action for a year and I sort of knew what I was getting myself into. Cameron Health was much bigger. It was 300 some employees and you know burning a ton of money and building defibrillators themselves. So it was a, from a capital standpoint, it was a voracious consumer of cash. And so that was staggering me to, to, to me to get into it and understand what it took to keep the lights on was uh, was sobering for sure. 
The challenges themselves were familiar, the commercial challenges, the, the clinical trial enrollment. So that part, while not easy, was at least familiar. I think, you know, the biggest thing for me, and this was a feeling I didn't have quite the same when I ran that business at Medtronic, was just the, the tremendous sense of responsibility I felt for the patients that got this device, because I knew everyone that touched it, that built it, that developed it, uh, you know, it was built in the building under underneath my office. And so when you hear about a 16-year-old kid, there were a lot of young adults getting this device because it was an extravascular ICD. And, and you know, young adults that get an ICD, the Achilles heel is the lead failure over the course of their life. So hmm. having an extravascular lead, you know, bought them years and years of avoidance of all the complications of defibrillator lead failure. So we had lots of teenagers and young adults getting our device. And I remember, you know, when we had quality issues, when we had problems, it was a huge weight on my shoulders. And it comes with this business, yes. But when you're the CEO of a small company that, that's producing a life-saving therapy like that, it's, it's especially weighty. That was I would think so. Maybe the biggest surprise that I remember today. Yeah, the buck, the buck can't go anywhere else, right? Oh, <laughs> it stops oh. right there. So you you did, as I mentioned, you, or as you mentioned, you were acquired by Boston Scientific. You'd been CEO for a couple of years. Mike Mahoney, who we had about Device Talks Boston, had just become CEO, I think, of, of Boston Scientific yep. at that point. What was it like uh, negotiating that the sale of that company? I remember you had interviewed Mike Mahoney at, at the conference we referenced in Minnesota yeah, a few years ago. I you think, guys, think I did. You guys, no, uh, I, you had a good conversation. Yeah, it was very cordial. And the broad brush strokes, Boston had a, a structured option. So a fair amount of the deal was already predefined. There were some areas we negotiated, but it was largely the, the broad brush strokes were already in place. And it was a matter of sort of putting a bow on it and affecting mm -hmm. the transition. So I don't remember that. Mike is a great guy. He was actually, when it was acquired, he was technically still in a holding pattern because of his Oh, okay. Speed. But obviously great to get to know him early in his career there and, and exciting to watch what he's done. Remarkable. But it was a, a very, I think, a collaborative arrangement. I stayed on for six months and a day at Boston and sort of tested whether I wanted to go back into big companies and, and quickly arrived at the conclusion that startups were probably better suited to me and my sort of interests and pace and and uh, maybe short attention span. <laughs> Amen to that. And, and when you and I got to know each other, you were the CEO of MetaVention, which was a very early stage company there. So you led two companies uh, as CCO and CEO that were more later stage going into commercial, if not commercial. What's the difference between being an early stage CEO of an early stage company and CEO of a later stage company? And I'm guessing you see yourself preferring the latter. You're more of a yeah. commercial sales guy. Yeah. yeah. So, well, so MetaVention of the five CEO roles, that's the only one that was early stage. It was it was meant to be a six-month interim CEO role. I was actually working for Versant Ventures as an operating partner. They mm -hmm. dropped me in for six months to help capitalize the business, and in theory, hire a successor. And I learned uh, the hard way to beware the six-month interim executive. <laughs> and obviously, it was all with positive intent, and it was a, a good experience. But it, it, I, I realized quickly, it's hard to extricate yourself from an interim role, especially when you raise money. The new investors then expect you to actually stick around and put the money to work. So it was interesting. I learned It was an important lesson that I learned you know, regarding those sorts of roles, it was also important for me to learn how much less value I thought I could add to a company at that stage. You know, what they really needed and what we had always intended to bring in very quickly was an R&D stage or development stage CEO and somebody who was, 
you know, had an engineering background, was versed in first in man trials and early early clinical trials and pivotal trial design. And, you know, I, I knew all those things. I'd done some of them, but this was really, um, I felt like a fish out of water some days. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, I didn't get the same, it's a fascinating field. It was a kind of a moonshot approach to treating type two diabetes by denervating the liver. Remarkable sort of clinical data. Even now I'm still on the board of that company, but I felt a little bit out of place and like I couldn't really help the way I would like to. So when I finished that, I'm still obviously involved 10 years later, but when we did hire the right stage CEO to come in, I was reminded that it's really not sort of where I should be spending my time or where I can add a lot of value. My wife called it sitting on the egg. <laughs> wasn't very good at that for lots of reasons. <laughs> That's a great one. So uh, we'll wrap up with your background because I want to get into Augmetics, but uh, you went to Relievant Med Systems, which uh, was a later stage company, and then Barty Diagnostics, which would quickly go on to be acquired by Hillrom. I don't know how much you want to talk about Relievant, uh, that experience, or if you want to get right into Barty, but it seems like you have a bit of a, uh, a track record of becoming CEO of a company and having it get acquired within a couple of oh, years. Yeah. <laughs> Are you that good, I, Kevin? I, I, yeah. You know, I, I can't claim any credit. Barty was a really interesting, Barty was an ECG-based patch monitor. It was a it was a space that was, at that time in 2020 was a, a, of great interest. It was kind of one of the early interfaces between digital and med tech and, and telehealth and sort of these pipelines to home monitoring. And for those reasons, it it was an intriguing space. I was thrilled to get that opportunity. And and within, well, within the first couple of technically days that I was at the company, we had the first unsolicited offer to be acquired. So obviously I had nothing to do with that. It was a great company with great technology. I helped them through the process and sold the company, but it was a a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. And so I, I can't claim to, to you know, have any sort of prescience there. But it did sort of introduce me to, you know, now with Augmetics, I'm even mm-hmm. deeper into this digital health space. And, and arguably the, the product we have today is more, you know, it's heavily technical, it's software, it's imaging, it's it's hardware, it's optics. So it's it's even further maybe from traditional med device, but again, really interesting. Second one in a row that's a little bit more digital than it is implantable. Yeah. Which I found very interesting. Well, let's let's roll into Augmetics. It's a great segue. Tell tell us a bit more about the company. It's an AR surgical navigation company. What was it about the technology and the opportunity that appealed to you? Why why did you take the job as CEO? Yeah, so I was contacted as we were wrapping up the Barney process by the by the new investors at Augmetics who come in first uh, institutional U.S. investors in the company. The company was founded in Israel based on some technology that in part came out of the Israeli military, and that's that's become a pretty typical refrain now. Interestingly enough. And it was inverted into the U.S. in 2019. But effectively, it was the first, and it, it was, in fact, in 2019, the first FDA-approved augmented reality application in surgery. And what it does is it allows a, a, the projection of a CT image into a heads-up display system that a surgeon would wear on their head and allows for the first time for a surgeon using spine navigation to actually look at the surgical field and not to have to look away from the surgical field at two-dimensional screens across the room. Hmm. And you know, navigation has been around for 20-some years. Medtronic is the market leader. They invented it in 1996, but it's never topped 20% market penetration. And it's not because it doesn't work. It has been absolutely proven to improve clinical accuracy in the placement of pedicle screws. That's kind of a, 
the high stress moment in a spine surgery is the placement of a pedicle screw. And, and they've proven that they can improve accuracy by six or seven points, which makes a big difference when you're putting in hardware next to the spinal column. It's also been proven to reduce radiation, which is a huge issue for surgical staffs, especially in orthopedics. And it's clearly a facilitator of minimally invasive approaches to spine surgery. But for, for a number of reasons, the technology was never broadly adopted. And so today, only one in five physicians use it, and they only use it on about 18% of the procedures. And it's because it was inelegant, right? It required a physician to divert their attention throughout the procedure away from the surgical field, which creates fatigue and stress. It requires physicians to, to stay. There's cameras overhead that monitor the procedure with optical trackers. And any, anytime somebody leans into the, into the surgical field, navigation experience stops. There were other issues around sort of the user interface itself. It required a physician to create a three-dimensional sort of mental model of the spine as they looked across the room at two-dimensional images. And so it was really the, the barriers to adoption. It was not a terribly intuitive system to use, and it remains that way today. And it also cost $700,000 or something. So for a lot of reasons, it was sort of stalled out for the last 20 years. So enter sort of augmented reality and AI, and you now have the tools to make this very legitimate concept, proven concept, much more accessible and to change the cost benefit balance. So it now costs a lot less in attention and in learning curve and in distraction and in money to use this technology than it has for the last 26 years. So the benefits have always been there. We're making them much more accessible in the hope that 80% of these procedures can now take advantage of the clinical benefits. So the X Vision was launched in 2020, correct? That's right. Yep. And I'm looking at a picture of it right now, and obviously this is a podcast. We'll have some links to your site so people can take a look if they want. Describe it for it. It looks like a headset, but goes over the, the top of the head with the visor on one end and the something on the back of the head on no, the other. The, the processing systems in the back. Yeah, so it, it, it looks actually quite similar to surgical headlights. Okay. Surgical loops. So it's so the form factor is pretty familiar. This obviously weighs more than a pair of surgical loops would because you you literally have the entire stealth station, you know, the, the Medtronic legacy system that has 80% market share. Israeli team managed to shrink that and effectively put it on the physician's head, which eliminates the need to look away from, from the surgical field. It eliminates the overhead disruption from the cameras. It allows you to see a three-dimensional image of the spine rendered in, in precise sub-millimeter accuracy directly onto the patient. And so literally, you the sense that you're looking through the patient's skin. So it's quite remarkable. And uh, most physicians who first put this on their head swear because they cannot believe what they're seeing. It kind of creates <laughs> that sort of moment. So it's it's a the, the very long answer to your question is when I saw the technology in, in action, it was jaw-dropping. So I'm looking at the image yeah, that... I was uh, uh, looking at the image that came is also on the on the press release, and I guess that's what. It, so it's an image of what you can see when looking through through the headset. There's a circle, and you can see the spine in there. So I thought that was actually a representation of what was seeing after the patient had been opened. But this is something that they're seeing. The yeah. patient hasn't been opened there's, without there's... ever touching the skin. Nope. Wow. And you know, interestingly, about we've been at this. 2020 was not a great year to launch anything. No. They struggled valiantly learned a lot of lessons. And so we sort of relaunched this last summer. So we're really 12 months into chapter two of the commercial effort. 
And what we've been seeing is, is some very interesting trends. Right now, if we look at the users of this system, 60% of them were using Medtronic Stealth or one or two other systems, largely Medtronic, and switched to our system. So they were navigators who were willing to put up with the hassles because they believed in the value of navigation. But interestingly, the other 40% of our users were physicians who were in centers that had navigation, but they were choosing not to use it and, and did not navigate until Augmetics came onto the scene. And so we think that's really important where 80% of the procedures and physicians today are not using navigation. That's a pretty important proof point, we think, in the value we're creating with this technology. Putting the imaging aside and, and the, the oh wow factor aside, surgeons who are using this, how is it being represented in the surgery? Are you seeing that they're doing a better job with the, the procedures? Are they faster? What sort of value are you, is XVision providing to surgeons and to hospitals that, that are using the system? Yeah. So the data, so so like the legacy systems today that consist of a tower of equipment and the overhead cameras and the screens on the wall, we have demonstrated that our navigation system is as accurate as the best-in-class Medtronic stealth system. So they are achieving that same accuracy improvement than they might have using a traditional nav system. What they're doing is significantly reducing uncertainty and they tell us stress. So the ability, as you can imagine, to have to look away from the surgical field every 10 seconds for 15 or 20 minutes as you're working with the scalpel on the patient's spine, that's a pretty stressful experience. So they tell us it allows them, some of them say it allows them to work more quickly. Others tell them it allows them to see the spine much more because 60% of our procedures are done with the patient open. Wow. So it's not just an MIS tool. They actually find that they can see all of the spine, even if only the top of it is exposed. So, you know, it's a combination of, of accuracy, of x-ray reduction, certainly of comfort. And what we are seeing is health systems um, around the United States are using this in a way that they use robotics to market their practices and their service lines as cutting edge, world-class spine programs. Is the cost of, of X-Vision part of the regular reimbursement payment, or do you have your own reimbursement code yeah. if the system is used? Yeah. So today, so there's a capital component. So this the typical system costs about, it's and it's customized based on the number of physicians and number of operating rooms. The headsets are physician-specific and tuned to their interpupillary distance. But the typical capital cost is about $240,000. So that's roughly a third of of what you'd pay for a legacy navigation system. It's probably a fourth or a fifth of what you'd pay for a robot. So on the capital side, it's a very different value proposition than, than other enabling technology that we compete against. On the clinical side, there's a per case disposable. It ranges between $1,800 and $2,000 per case. That's paid for out of the DRG, like all other navigation disposables and robotic disposables. So despite 20 years of effort, Medtronic and others have been unable to secure any meaningful additional reimbursement for the use of these technologies. Thankfully, these are well-reimbursed procedures. And so the physicians and the system see this as a, as a worthwhile investment in their procedures. So this is seen as sort of the, the, the last bit of the bridge to kind of get surgeons over to the other side where they're using this sort of imaging more regularly because they had the yeah. systems before, the abilities before, but again... Looking away from the patient just created discomfort and uncertainty, but this is is eliminating those those barriers. Yeah, you know, and I should have mentioned that you know this is an interesting market because spine is arguably the third or fourth largest medical device market in the world. It's the largest of all the musculoskeletal subspecialties, but at seven billion dollars in the U.S., it is almost undifferentiated. 
And so the reason navigation and robotics sprung up in spine, in part in spine, is because that was the tool through which the device manufacturers would add value and differentiate their hardware offerings. It's not about the hardware as much as it's about the tools they provide for physicians to use the hardware and to use it effectively and most accurately. So, you know, that's the, the opportunity in this field. The reason there's uh, so much focus on enabling tech like ours, like robotics, is that it, it allows these companies to create interesting bundles of product and value and clinical value to sell to physicians. And it's not just the screws themselves or the plates or the rods, which perhaps I'm simplifying, but a lot of that is relatively commoditized, unfortunately. Where do you fit into the whole digital surgery realm? We've talked about, you know, surgical robotics. We've talked about other imaging systems, other sort of 3D kind of GPS for for surgery sort of systems. There's a lot of different approaches to this. Do you see yourself as being used in conjunction with something else? Do you see this as competing with other sort of surgical imaging? Where does Augmetics fit into the bigger picture? Yeah, so I would say the, the short answer is no. This is one of a number of enabling technologies, most of which are meant to be used on a standalone basis. Okay. There are physicians using our headset with the robot, and they tell us, I had one on the phone earlier today, who told me that he likes to wear our system because he can see what the robot's doing, and he wants to see what the robot's doing Interesting. At the end of its effectors. And so, but I, I don't think that's necessarily a short-term focus of ours. What we have seen is that this system is being used in almost the exact same proportion of cases that traditional hardware is. So that if you cut it by the number of levels being fused, if you cut it by thoracic versus lumbar versus cervical versus sacrum, uh, if you cut it by early career surgeon, mid-career, late career surgeon, if you cut it by academic or, or community hospital, it is almost mirroring today's surgical, the distribution of, of surgical procedures. So it does not appear so far to be a niche, and nor are we trying to position it that way. What I would say is and the robots are probably most, today's robots are most often used and perhaps deliver the most value in extremely complex cases. So in deformity cases, in complex revisions, that's where we see the robots being used. That's a smaller, it's a 10 to 15% of the procedural market. We are also used in in that part of the market, but it's not someplace we focus. And, And we understand that's probably where robots will find their greatest value in the short term. So we're happy to leave them that part of the market and and the surgeons and patients in sort of the bread and butter, thoracal lumbar degenerative spine market, which is 85% of the total. Interesting. So how do you work with, or will you be working with other companies? And maybe I'm re-asking the question, but you've mentioned Medtronic stealth technology a few times. Is that the only system that this is compatible with? Do you see yourself using this interface with other imaging systems? You're able to project their imaging onto your headset. What does the well, future look yeah, like? No, so let me, yeah, glad you asked that. So this is There is no compatibility with other systems. This is not meant to interface with any other navigation systems. Okay. This competes directly with and technically would be an alternative to a legacy navigation system. And in effect, you know, the entire system is worn on the physician's head. So there's no, there's nothing else. There's a screen in the room for the sales rep and the the anesthesiologist to see what the physician sees, but it's largely a self-contained navigation system. So someone's buying this instead of a, a larger navigation system. This is the navigation system. It's yeah, not just an interface too. It, it delivers all the same functionality and accuracy that a, a you know a best-in-class legacy system would. Understood. Okay. So is there any opportunity? We're seeing a number of uh, 
GE Healthcare recently entered in a partnership with with Depucynthes over imaging and, and surgery, spine surgery. Are there partnership opportunities for Augmentics? What is your what does your future look like? And we'll talk about your financing in a moment, but how do you see this company growing? Yeah, I think that's a great question. We have a number of conversations underway. We have a number of agreements already in place. We're sort of piloting some things to understand how best to expand our footprint in the market. What we've learned, at least in the short term, is that we need world-class clinical and sales resources in our cases supporting our technology. And we think in the short term, that's a burden, of course, it's expensive, but that's a critical adoption driver for us. We think you can't skimp on that. You can't borrow somebody's distributor or sign a relationship with someone else that doesn't care as much about the technology. We think, and thankfully we have access to the capital we need to do that directly, at least in the short term. What we're seeing is that when our system is used, Physicians are giving us 67% of all of their eligible procedures. Wow. So we, we think a remarkable level of adoption for a relatively new technology like this one. And it's happening because of the quality of the people we have supporting those procedures day in and day out. And the comfort that they create for the surgeons to use this, this technology you know, beyond maybe one or two beachhead procedures and to expand throughout their clinical repertoire and use it in the widest possible range of cases. And we've got a significant number of physicians giving us almost 100% of their business. So again, we think that clinical support is crucial to making this an indispensable part of how a physician does spine surgery. You know, our, our goal is to have them reach for our system the way they reach for their reading glasses and to effectively become hooked. So we don't have that perfected yet, but we're on to something and we're certainly seeing that very dynamic in certain parts of the market. And our goal now is to try to understand it and and operationalize it and roll it out across the full spectrum of our sales teams and, and clinical sites. Great. Just f- final question. As I've mentioned a couple of times, you recently closed on a, uh, this week announced closing on an $82.5 million Series D financing. Round was led by Dallas-based CPMG and uh, Evidity Health Capital as a syndicate partner. You've talked a little bit about what you would like to do with the money, but maybe share a little more with that if you're going to be hiring folks. But before you, you get into the plans of what you'll do with the money, talk about raising the money. What was It's not a great market out there for raising capital. Uh, how, how much of an effort was this? Well, this was a, a heavy lift. Probably of all the, I haven't counted, but of all the fundraisings I've been part of, this was probably among the toughest because of the macro environment. Yeah. We're thrilled to add, these are two very sophisticated med tech, PE, and VC firms that invest in enabling tech. So it was a very rigorous and diligent process. We're thrilled to add them to the two other significant US PE firms that were already invested. What we believe is that 82 million is is the largest orthopedics raise since 2012. Wow. I think the largest healthcare AR VR raise in history. So this was this is a brutal environment and very few opportunities are getting access to capital. So the fact that we were able to raise and to raise this much we think is a testament to the the opportunity and the team and the technology. So we're, we're thrilled that the market has signaled their support for us and has given us access to this capital. And, and what are your plans? And, and how would you describe Augmentics to someone asking, are you a medical device company? You, you said digital health. I don't know if I see it's more like digital surgery. We can, we can throw our own terms all the yeah. time, but is this a medical device company? Is this just the newest type of medical device out there featuring AR? Or yeah. is it something different? Is it more of a tech company? You know, and so that, that's a great question. So the, there are 
there are no shortage. This is a very noisy environment, right? There are no shortage of companies. Almost every week, somebody announces that they're doing something with AR or VR. Very few of the companies in our space, in orthopedics or spine, using AR and VR are actually navigating surgery. So many of them have tools for education or for training or for surgical planning. There are currently five approved companies in the U.S. besides Augmetics to do spinal navigation using some sort of novel visualization tool. Augmetics just treated our 4,000th patient this week. We just uh, implanted our 20,000th screw. The five other companies in our space, we believe, have not treated together more than 50 patients. Hmm. So we are far and away the leader. And, and we believe, importantly, many of those other competitors are using off-the-shelf consumer technology. And thankfully, the founder and the technical team, before I arrived, made the decision to develop a purpose-built medical device. So we are not borrowing Microsoft HoloLens or Magic Leap or the new Apple Glasses. This is a purpose-built, optimized medical device that is specifically designed for surgery. And there are a number of reasons technically that that's important. There are things that we put into our headset that Microsoft would never put into a consumer grade gaming system. There's issues like the, the focal point of a gaming system is at infinity, whereas a surgeon's focal point is typically at 50 centimeters. And what that means is a surgeon wearing Microsoft HoloLens trying to do surgery, his eyes are constantly accommodating to pull the focal point from infinity into 50 centimeters. So there are things like that. And, and the fact that a surgeon wearing Microsoft HoloLens has to look down at a 30 degree angle throughout the procedure, which is tough on their neck because it's set up for a straight line of sight to the horizon. So lots of stuff like that, that we think, we think it has to be a medical device. It has to be purpose-built and controlled by our company. The other challenge you have when you use an off-the-shelf consumer tech is that Every time Microsoft changes that platform, you're stuck having to update your FDA approval. Right? You, you no longer control the technical platform. We're obviously in a highly regulated industry, but consumer tech and education and industrial applications don't have those constraints. So those technologies iterate much more rapidly than what you typically see in med device because of our regulatory burden. So for all those reasons, we think it is, in fact, a medical device, and we think it has to be. And final question, how do you grow? I mean, we can, we can joke, you know, the next time I'll talk to you, it'll, it'll be after you've been acquired. You've been <laughs> given that you're the CEO, but you mentioned private equity investors, obviously they bring yeah. deep pockets. Uh, is this something that you see as a publicly traded company that expands with other products? Is this a product or is this a company? What What is Argmetics look yeah. like, do you think, in a few years? It's a great question. So we are, we are building this as a, a standalone platform. We think yep. that we can be, absolutely can be profitable as a standalone platform, we will consider expanding into adjacent clinical applications. And there are a number of them, they come up all the time that are of interest to us. We will eventually expand geographically. We haven't done that yet either. So for the moment, we're focused on spine. Thankfully, it's one of the largest markets in the world, but this money will be used to further iterate our technology and to preserve that technical lead that we believe we, we own in this market. And maybe more importantly, to extend our commercial footprint and to hire more sales reps, more capital reps, more clinical reps, and expand our coverage in the U.S. We're in about 22 states, you know, 70 plus institutions, including many of the most notable academic and, and community hospitals. So we have a long way to go. We're, we're thrilled to get money to do both those things. Those are not inexpensive 
endeavors, either the technical one or the commercial one. And we're thrilled to be able to continue to build our leadership in the space. So we're we're hopefully not going anywhere. Maybe we'll take it public at some point if that's the right way to raise capital. Mm -hmm. We're we're going heads down, thankfully. We're going to put this money to work for the next two or three years and try to build a very uh, healthy, sustainable business and one that makes a difference in patients' lives. Fantastic. Great way to end. Great story to tell. Kevin Hikes, thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right, Chris Newmarker, Sean Hooley had to have a moose, but uh, how can folks find you on social media? Here, I'll do us all. You can find me, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. You can find Tom Salemi, and you can find Sean Hooley, W-H-O-O-L-E-Y, on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find us. We are big LinkedIn users. And we want folks to do what with our podcast, our Device Talks Podcast Network, Chris? You've got to like follow subscribe there you go like follow and boom, or subscribe. boom boom you will get the device talks weekly podcast intuitive talks striker talks boston scientific talks and abbott talks if you device if you subscribe to the device talks podcast network and please do share this episode of the device talks weekly podcast let us know how you like the uh the new thematic newsmakers but once again for folks who missed last week we're not doing our one through five countdowns anymore we're going to focus on the, the broader news. We're going to bring yeah. trends and observations and big pictures. We like big pictures, like really big pictures. Like, you know, and some, I'm sure some weeks there might just be like a few really big, big stories that week that we just, you know, want to run through them. But, you know, I think I uh, it's it's you know, I think we're, we're going to mix this up a bit, especially since we've got, uh, you know, uh, like our, our senior editor, Daniel Kirsch and Sean are just, you know, really rocking it every day on our uh, new Fast Five podcast, giving people the top headlines. So if people want to get the Fast Five podcast, they will not get it if they like, follow and or subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network. <laughs> They have to like, follow, and or subscribe to the Fast Five podcast. Yep, go go subscribe to the Fast Five. So available on every podcast application that you can find out there. Both of them are. So make sure you find yes. them and uh, enjoy them. And other than that, uh, we will be meeting for well, no device talks Tuesdays next week because it's Fourth of July, and no device talks weekly right. next week because it's the Fourth of July. We'll have a great Boston Scientific talks coming out. We'll have the uh, keynote interview that I did with Mike Mahoney at Device Talks in Boston. That'll be the Boston Scientific Talks podcast next week. So uh, people can enjoy that. It was a very good conversation. And uh, we'll be back the following week. Uh, The agenda for Device Talks West will be going up the week after next. uh, And uh, registration is open. Keynotes include Fred Kasravi of Imperative Care, uh, Dave Rosa of Intuitive. We've got other other keynotes as well. Other panel discussions. We'll have contributions from Boston Scientific. Uh, they'll be talking about neuromodulation. We'll have a great panel by Imperative Care talking about their robotics program and uh, also their digital health program and just how they're treat, treating stroke as a whole. So, ton of stuff. Uh, you will be there'll be too much for you to to see every panel that you want to see. Uh, so you gotta be there or be square. Be there or no, be square, uh, and just and just know that uh, that you're gonna find lots of great value there. So go to devicetalks.com to register for that. The early bird registration is in effect, uh, three ninety five. That's three hundred bucks off the total price, the full price. So uh, register now. But uh, all right, Chris and Martin, that's great. Well, hey, a, enjoy the summer. Yeah, happy fourth to you, sir, great. and your family. Happy birthday, America. Happy birthday, America. Take care, everybody. Happy birthday, America. (laughs) Take care, everybody. Bye.